Greetings, brethren, on this Feast of the Pentecost. Now let's begin here by turning to Isaiah the 54th chapter. We have a number of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the importance of the Holy Spirit. Now let's keep in mind when we're talking about the day of Pentecost, we're talking about the day in which God gave his spirit wholesale to his church. Maybe wholesale is not the right uh, word to use, but uh, in a broad sense, the Holy Spirit was given at that time. So here's a prophecy, if we'll note here, in Isaiah 54, verse number 13. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Now, if you read that particular text there in Isaiah, the 54th chapter, you wouldn't necessarily think it could be a reference to the Holy Spirit. But what you find it in the New Testament it's quoted actually in the book of John here and certainly implies the importance of the Holy Spirit. So let's notice John 6, verse number 45. Remember what Jesus said here, No man can come to me except the Father, which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, I think we're all aware that we can only be called by means of God's Spirit. He opens up our minds and our hearts to accept the Word, and we're, we're given a divine calling that by that means. And then as we read here, Every man, therefore, or rather as it is written, verse 45, it is, As it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. So here's the actual quote. From Isaiah 54:13, in the context of being drawn to the to the knowledge of the truth through the Father, which certainly implies the workings of the Holy Spirit. Now, in John 14, verse number 26, here's what we read about the Holy Spirit. How do we learn? This is what we're told. John 14, verse 26, and the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things. So how are we taught of God? Well, certainly we're taught by men, because men are God's representatives doing the speaking, but our eyes and minds have to be opened, and the only way they're opened is by means of the Holy Spirit. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now keep in mind, as we have commented before, the he is only translated he in the King James Version because in the Greek, the antecedent to the pronoun, the word comforter, is masculine, and so to be correct grammatically, the he has to be translated in the masculine gender. But we know the Holy Spirit is not a he, it is the power of God, it is not a third person of the Trinity. So that, those particular texts right there show very plainly that here was an allusion a very clear allusion given back in the Old Testament relative to the importance of the Holy Spirit and its its um, part in teaching us and helping us to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, that's just one text. There are others that are quite a bit clearer. Let's notice in Haggai, the uh, second chapter. Right after the book of Zechariah. Wait a second, let me find it here. Just before the book of Zechariah. My thumbs are too thick here this morning. Anyway, uh, in Haggai, the second chapter, and verse number five, we read, 
according to the word that I covenanted with you when I when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. Now remember the relationship that God had with ancient Israel was a physical relationship, and while they did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, they had it certainly had it working with them. And we know very plainly from the Bible that the fault of the Old Covenant was not with God, it was with the people, because they did not have the capability and the power even to live up to the physical requirements of the law, let alone the spiritual. And so there was, was a promise that God's Spirit would remain, but the difference, of course, is that in the New Testament period, the function of this Spirit and its, um, its, its a power and influence would be much broader than what it was in the Old Testament, and it would be much more effective, because it wouldn't just be working with them, it would be in them. That is, in the New Testament candidates. Now here in Isaiah, the 44th chapter, here we have another text regarding the Holy Spirit, and we read here in Isaiah 44, verse number 3, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. Now we know the the water is a symbol of the Spirit, but now to notice, notice how the parallel is carried even further here. I will pour my Spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. Now spiritually speaking then, we see very plainly that here was a promise that God was making through Isaiah that the Holy Spirit would be given in a, in a uh, much broader sense than it ever was in the Old Testament. We don't have any examples directly in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit actually dwelt within them like what happened after the day of Pentecost in the book, as we find recorded in the book of Acts. Now in Ezekiel, we have some further passages here, although some, well, certainly in a broad sense it applies to the millennium. These texts here are generally regarded as applying to the millennium, but we know that the first fruits of the Spirit now, by comparison to those who will receive the Holy Spirit in the millennium, are certainly small by comparison. But notice what it says is going to take place here in the future. Ezekiel 39, verse number 29. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. I can tell you, if there's anything in this world, you know, you can remember this, this song that was very popular back in the 70s. What the world needs now is love, love, love. Sweet love. I can tell you, I'll tell you what the world the world needs. It needs God's Spirit, because there can't be any love without God's Spirit. And they talk about love all the time, and they don't have the slightest concept of what it really means, and they certainly don't do not know, as we shall see, that it that is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But as he says here, I'm going to pour it out upon the whole house of Israel. And if you, can you imagine what this this nation would be like if the, if everyone had God's Holy Spirit? I tell you, it would be it would be unbelievable. So, it it would alter and change nature so much. We have all of these various ideologies of men attempting to change man's nature by various gimmicks, economic gimmicks, and uh, location gimmicks. And things of that nature. They don't have the slightest idea. You cannot change man's nature except by means of the Holy Spirit. And communism was doomed to be an utter failure from the very beginning because it absolutely overlooks the most important ingredient in all in changing human nature. And that's not money. It's God's Spirit. Now back in Ezekiel 36, verse number 27. Here we're talking again about after this resurrection. Actually, uh, 
just prior to the resurrection we find described here in Ezekiel 37th chapter, but here is what is going to take place. A new heart also will I give you, Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will put within you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and my judgments, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. We have people today who, they realize the importance of God's commandments, all right, but how do they have, how do they find the capability of really living up to them? The only way you can really live up to them is if you have a, a good measure of God's Holy Spirit. So at this particular time in the future here, we're reading this is exactly what's going to take place. They're going to walk with a new spirit and a new heart. And they're going to be a different kind of people than what we have today. They're not going to be these uh, hard-hearted, uh, carnal-minded, uh, self-seeking, selfish people that are so prevalent in this society in this world today. And if you don't believe that, just get into a traffic jam sometime. You'll find out. All right, Joel 2, verse number 2, verses 28 and 29. This is a very well-known passage, actually quoted uh, numerous times. Well, maybe I shouldn't say numerous times, but certainly quoted so that we uh, we have heard it more than once. But in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. We'll see this in the context, right? of the New Testament shortly here. So, uh, as it says, also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Now, you're going to find that Peter actually applies that text to what occurred on the day of Pentecost, but that was really only a small foreshadow of what will take place in the future. So, we see that there were a number of Old Testament passages. There, there are many more that could be covered, but I'm just hitting the high spots to set the stage here because not only, now remember, Christ had a, Christ's ministry actually had a forerunner with John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist say? He said, he'll baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire. So John actually foretold the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he was a forerunner to Christ. And then Christ came on the scene and he had a three and a half year ministry. So Let's assume that John's ministry was a year or two. We don't really know the exact time limit, but we can assume it was a few years anyway. Christ had a three and a half year ministry, so we can say anywhere between four and six years. There was a ministry that was forecasting this Holy Spirit, even in the New Testament period. It wasn't just limited to the Old Testament prophecies. So let's notice here what we read in Matthew, the third chapter. Matthew, the third chapter. And this is what John said. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. They would be immersed by the Holy Spirit, is what he's saying here, and with fire. And of course, fire referring to the final penalty and punishment that will be paid upon men, uh, reaped by men for their ungodliness and their rebellion. And then in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 20. Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 20. Here Jesus was actually telling in advance. Here's what he was telling his disciples. He was telling them that uh, you'll, you'll be delivered up to the councils, all right, and you'll be brought up before the kings and 
and before the Gentiles, and he said, When they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which is in you. So here was Jesus actually telling his disciples in advance that they, there would come a time period when they would literally be inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the words that would come out of their mouth would be a direct result of the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, not from their own hearts and minds. And in John 7, verse number 38, this statement is, here was Jesus on this last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, as we read in verse number 37, and he said, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit. So Jesus himself actually prophesied that the Holy Spirit would play a very, very important part in the whole work that would be accomplished in the future. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. He had not ascended to heaven and returned to his glory. He had to, he had to ascend to heaven and return to his glory before the Holy Spirit could be given. And so he actually forecast the time period of his ascension to heaven and his glorification, and then the fact that the Holy Spirit would at that point of time be given. John 14, verse number 16. Here we find another statement. John 14, verse 16. If you love me, as he said in verse 15, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. That he, and here we have the word he again in these next two verses. And just keep in mind that he and him refer back to the word comforter, which is masculine in the Greek, and grammatically it has to be translated he and him, but we understand it properly as it refers to it. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you. See, at that point in time, the Holy Spirit was working with them, but notice what it says here, and shall be in you. So there is a difference. There is a difference. Those prophets in Old Testament times were inspired by the Holy Spirit that was with them. Because we just read this, the text in John, the seventh chapter, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here we're actually seeing a forecast then of the Holy Spirit that would be the spirit of truth. And as we saw earlier, they shall all be taught of God. So here was Jesus himself prophesying that the Holy Spirit would be given, and it would be made available. Now going back to Luke chapter 24, and verse number 49, Luke 24 and verse number 49, Jesus has, had actually foretold what would, be, what would happen to him on many occasions, but they didn't seem to grasp it. They did not have the spiritual perspicuity to grasp what he was really saying. And, and then he's, then we read here, then verse 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. I don't know what your experience was in the past, but I know what mine was. People would pump me all up and tell me the importance of reading the Bible, and I'd go home and I'd open up my mouth. And I mean literally blow the dust off it, and I'd open it up, and I'd start reading, and it would just blah, 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 blah. It absolutely made no sense whatsoever. 
I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. I was determined one time to read through the New Testament. And uh, the best that I can remember, I got to a few places there in Paul's epistles and where he was laying out sin. And I said to myself, well, he lays it out pretty straight. And that's as much as I ever got from reading the entire New Testament. Didn't understand a word. Well, you cannot understand it unless God opens your mind to it. And he does that by his spirit. He gave them a preload here. And uh, he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And what was that promise? It was the Holy Spirit. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Now, let's keep in mind, these 12 apostles uh, were granted powers and capabilities and gifts which we don't have today. And I'm, I'm quite sure for a reason, because when you look back at that time period, here was Christianity entering into the pagan world, and you had all these peoples immersed, enmeshed in these pagan religions of one type or another. How would God get their attention and really make them listen? That's why you find these miraculous miracles and these deeds being done constantly to get their attention so they'd listen to the truth. Now, today, we don't have that situation exactly. And uh, what we really have is we have, what, hundreds of competing so-called Christian religions. We have these so-called faith healers up there, and people respond to that phoniness, and they couldn't tell the truth. You know, back in that time, when they saw a miracle occur, the way those apostles worked those miracles, there wasn't any doubt in their minds what was taking place. Well, today you've got so much phoniness going on, people can't tell the real from the false. When it serves God's purpose to do it, he will do it. But for the present, the promise was given to those apostles that they would receive that Holy Spirit and it would be granted them the powers to carry out that first generation commission. Acts 1 verse number 5. As we read in verse 4, being assembled together with them, commanded them, that is what Christ did, he commanded them, they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Now, we know Jesus, it says in the book of Corinthians, that he was seen over 40, over 40 days after his resurrection. So this, uh, this instruction here, it was given during that time period, sometime, at some time period prior to the day of Pentecost. Remember, the day of Pentecost occurred 50 days. That is, beginning to count after the first Sabbath day, not the high Sabbath day, but during the Sabbath, during the days of unleavened bread, the weekly Sabbath. And then we find here they were required to stay there. So we have approximately a brief period of time that they stayed there, probably 10 days, maybe two weeks. We're not really sure. But then as he goes on to say, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Immersed with the Holy Spirit what he's saying. Now that actually took place in, the, in Acts the second chapter, which we'll get to here in a few minutes. But here's what he said in verse number eight. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now we don't have a historical record of anything beyond Asia Minor and Italy. We know that there were churches established in, in Asia Minor, and there were churches established in Greece. And when I say 
Asia Minor, I'm including Greece in the broad sense, although technically it's not Asia Minor, but let's say Asia Minor, Greece, and Italy. There's a reference to Spain. Paul said he wanted to go there. And we have a reason to believe that he also went to Great Britain after his release by Nero. But what happened to the other apostles? They vanished from sight. And yet we know there certainly is a quite a number of traditions that pinpoint the locations of practically every one of them. And I think we can certainly say that if God made this promise, they would go to the other ends, uttermost ends of the earth. That's what he meant. So they went out with power to accomplish that mission, that purpose. All right, the Holy Spirit then was was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it was prophesied in the New Testament prior to the time the Holy Spirit actually came upon that church by Christ, by John the Baptist, and as I said in the Old Testament, by several of the prophets. Now let's notice the advent of that Holy Spirit as it occurred in the church, the, the fulfillment of those prophecies that had been made. In Acts, the second chapter, we read in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with one accord, they were with one accord in one place. Or the, as the literal Greek reads, during the accomplishing of the day of Pentecost. Now, some people jump on this text here to try to prove that means it's the 50th day. Let me tell you something, folks. There's only one single place in the Bible that tells you how to count Pentecost. That's Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. This text does not tell you how to count Pentecost. So if you're grubbing up the idea that this is the 50th day, it's conjured out of your own mind. It's not conjured. It's not taken from the scriptures. 50 days have to be counted before Pentecost is, is observed. And I can prove that very plainly here from Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. And when this is brought up to these people of Keep Sunday, and you, you call this to your attention, and you point these scriptures out to them, you know what they do? They look at you and they go, Gah. They don't even understand what you're talking about. It's all their minds are just utterly blinded. But if you read here very plainly here in Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, it says, You shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave sheep offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Now you see the little phrase here, from the morrow? That's me, Mahorat. Now whenever me is used with account, it's always inclusive, which means then, when you say, when you, you shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, that, what is the morrow after the Sabbath? That's Sunday. What does that mean then if it's inclusive? It means that Sunday is day one of the count. Now, this was the very basis of the Pentecost change that was made back there in 1974. The only problem is they only read half of the coin. Because it says you're to count, notice verse 16, this is Leviticus 23, 16, even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. And you see the little phrase here, unto the morrow? That's the exact same thing, me mahorat. Well, what does that mean then? What is the morrow after the seventh Sabbath? That's Sunday, isn't it? Well, if that is inclusive, if the me is used here in verse 15, as it is also used here in verse 16, then it means the me is found in the latter part of the count, which means the count has to be, it means that the Sunday has to be counted also. If you only count up to Sunday, you're only counting 49 days, not 50 days. So it has to be a complete 
50-day count before Pentecost can be observed. And I can tell you, until this can be answered, proving that we're wrong on this, then I can tell you there's absolutely no reason whatsoever ever to believe that Pentecost is any other day but Monday. But you bring this up to all these people who keep Sunday, and I mean, they draw a blank. They don't even know what you're talking about. It's as though God had just put a veil over their eyes. And I can tell you, you might not think Pentecost is important, but that was the very basis for the destruction of the church. When that occurred, when that change took place, the church was just down a downhill slide ever since. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked on that, but uh, let's go back here now to Acts, the second chapter. And uh, I like uh, Archbishop Cramner's translation of 1539. It was one of the pre-runners. Pre uh, one fellow smugly called it, uh, what did he say, a uh, um, unknown or unheard of version. Uh, his, his smug remark was because he compromised and bought a Sunday Pentecost like the rest of the crowd did. Anyway, Archbishop Cramner has, and I, I like it, while it is probably is not technically correct according to the Greek, it nevertheless really catches a sense of it. He said, when the 50 days had come to an end, they were all with one accord in one place. When the 50 days had come to an end. Evidently, he understood that a full 50 days have to be counted. And I can tell you that this very day, the Jews admit they only count 49 days. And that's exactly what Worldwide does and all these affiliates have broke away from it. They're only counting 49 days. And then they smugly sit back and, and smirk and uh, refer to anybody who keeps Monday Pentecost as counting 51 days. Poppycock. When the 50 days have come to an end, the count is ended. There isn't any 51st day. So as we read here, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them, and we have cloven tongues, it can be translated distributed tongues, like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was prophesied. So we see very plainly here that this was a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had made for them to dwell, and it certainly is a fulfillment of many of the prophecies in the Old Testament that said the same thing. Now, continuing here in the book of Acts, you will recall that Peter gave this first inspired message here, his really first inspired speaking. And we pick that up beginning in verse number 14. Peter begins to speak. He talks about uh, Jesus, and then he mentions how David here wasn't, uh, wasn't sent to heaven, as people believe. And then in verse 32, this Jesus, whom God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the, of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has shed forth this, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. So what Peter was actually saying is that, you know, they, they saw these uh, disciples there acting in this, what they regarded as a strange way, and they, uh, they accused some of them of being drunken. You remember that? And uh, Peter, is, of course, uh, uh, denying that because he's showing what really took place here. And what really took place here is the promise of the Holy Spirit. So that had been promised in the Old Testament. That had been promised in the New Testament period by Christ. And here was the fulfillment actually taking place. And um, so he actually says here as we continue that um, 
they were uh, actually fulfilling the prophet Joel. That's the text I read to you a little bit earlier. Because remember, back here in verse number 15, these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is about the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And that's a text I just read to you. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So that that was only the very small type, really, of the fulfillment of that text, because it'll be fulfilled in a massive manner in the future. What a world is going to be when the whole world is full of God's when the world, the world is full of God's spirit, and all the people have the mind of God instead of the mind of Satan, that so many have today. Now, skipping over to Acts 4, verse number 30, we read here, this was a, this was a prayer because they were, uh, had been threatened and um, hindered by the religious leaders of that day who regarded Jesus as a competitor. And they had this fixation in their minds that the total revelation had been given by Moses. And they didn't even understand Moses, frankly, because if they would have, they would have seen there was someone else coming. And uh, they're praying here, and then, as we read here, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, and they, uh, they uh, where they were assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spake the word of God with boldness. So you see, this is an example now of the workings of the Holy Spirit as it begins to manifest itself in the lives of these disciples and these uh, these apostles in this early New Testament church. God had a very great reason for doing it. Sometimes we think, unfortunately, the historical record ended in 61 AD with the last of the book of Acts. But... Uh, there was obviously a reason God did that. If we would have had the record of everything that would have happened and all the miracles done by all the apostles, we'd probably have a Bible several feet high. Anyway, uh, we have a hard enough time reading everything that's in this as it is, and God gave us the essential things we need to know. Now, I said a little earlier, we had this popular song back in the 70s, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. Remember that song? Well, your world cannot have love without the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the source of it. And so as you read here in Acts, in Romans 5, verse number 5, Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. So really, the only people that can manifest godly love, sure, people have human love, of course. You know, they love their relatives and their close, their, their friends and this type of thing, and that's a, you know, just a filial love, as they call it, and uh, often is an extension of the empirical self, because if you love your children, it means you only love an extension of yourself, which is only natural. But I can tell you this, how many of us love our enemies? I can tell you that's where the rubber meets the road. You can't have that kind of love except by means of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit manifested in the lives of the disciples and of the apostles in that early New Testament church was a manifestation of the fulfillment of that prophecy that had been given those prophecies concerning the gift of the Holy Spirit given back in the Old Testament and in during Christ's ministry. Now in 2 Thessalonians we find another manifestation of it here. 
This is what the Holy Spirit actually has done for all of us. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse number 13. Paul says, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation. How? Through sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, by means of the Holy Spirit, you were called. You were set aside. Sanctification simply means set aside for a holy purpose. That was done by the Holy Spirit and belief of the truth. Because you accepted and believed that truth, then God has chosen you. Now that's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And unless the Holy Spirit is working in one's heart and mind, how can you really grasp and understand the truth? You probably have had this same experience that I have. I tried to talk some of my relatives into a knowledge of the truth. And I spent uh, two or three hours just talking to my sister and my mother one day. And boy, I mean, I gave it everything I got. I talked till I was blue in the face. I wasn't preaching at them, but I was, I was sure telling them the truth and witnessing. And I got done talking to them. We got into the subject of pork. I don't know how we got into it. And I explained to them how pork was, was an unclean meat and wasn't suitable to be eaten. And, and uh, my sister, when we got done speaking, my sister looked over and she said to, her mother, to my mother, she said, you know, somebody said, I haven't had some good bacon in a long time. That's how much it got through to her. I mean, it was just like talking to a brick wall. See, God's the one that's responsible for giving us the knowledge of the truth. And if people, if people do not have the Holy Spirit, how can they understand it? So that's why we have to have God's Holy Spirit. That's why it's so significant. And once you have the Holy Spirit, I mean, you can understand the truth very quickly. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. Let us notice some more passages here. 1 Corinthians 3. I'm already talking about how this, how this Spirit was manifested in the church. And uh, some of the functions, that uh, things that the Holy Spirit uh, allows us to accomplish. First um, Corinthians 3, verse 16. Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? So really, the truth of the matter is, in a sort of a minuscule way, we are the temple of God's Spirit. We are temples, temples of God's Spirit. And God's Spirit dwells in us. Now, of course, we always have this struggle against the flesh, don't we? That's why we read the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And the two are contrary one to the other. So we cannot have the, the, the strength and power of God's Spirit if we neglect prayer and study. You know, I cannot emphasize this thing of prayer enough. Maybe we haven't said enough about it in sermons, but I can tell you, if you're letting the days slide by and you your time is so busy you don't have time to pray, I can tell you you're on the you're on a losing you're on the losing slide. You've got to have the Holy Spirit, and the way you re, you receive that Holy Spirit on a daily basis is through prayer and study. Don't make your life the physical things of this life so important to you that you do not have time for that, because if you don't, you're making the wrong choices. And you'll have all kinds of problems. And you wonder why you're having these problems. It ought to be obvious why you're having these problems. There's not enough God's Spirit being manifested in your life, if that's the case. So that's why we're called the temple of God's Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? Now, can you honestly say, you're all, you're all of you sitting there hearing my voice this morning, can you really honestly say, yes, I know that I have the Holy Spirit 
I've seen it manifested in my life, and I know the, I know the changes that have taken place. I don't pretend to be perfect. I've got faults and flaws, but I know that I have the Holy Spirit. Can you say that with confidence? If you can, that's good. That's what you should be able to say. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. Now, I think most of us repented and were baptized because we had enough of being our own. We became utterly disgusted with the self and what it had led to. And uh, do we want to return to that? If we're, if we're negligent, I can say if we're negligent in prayer and study and we're not stirring up the spirit that is in us, that old carnal nature will dominate. And it's not a very pleasant thing to have dominating in your life. So let's remember, we are, we are bought with a price, as it says here. There glorify God in your body which and in your spirit, which are God's. So this is the importance of the spirit. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 1, verse number 22. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. That's what the Holy Spirit is called, the earnest. Now what's the earnest? You know, if you if you venture into a real estate deal and you buy property, you have to put down earnest money. They call it earnest money. That means you're earnest about it. You're you're sincere and you mean you mean business. And usually require a five hundred dollar deposit, sometimes a thousand, but that's your earnest money proving that you're ready to go forth with the deal. Well, this is called the earnest. This is a down payment that God gives us. How much? Uh, you know, I don't think anybody can really answer this question, but uh, in, 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 in the percentage of the amount of Holy Spirit that's available, how much do we receive? The earnest. Can you imagine what our lives would be like if we were literally filled with the Holy Spirit like Jesus was? So God doesn't give us all that amount, see, because why? We have to overcome the pulls of this human nature. We have to build character and struggle ourselves to overcome it. It isn't just handed to us on a silver platter. So that's why we need to realize that it's called the earnest here. It's the down payment. And we don't want to ever let that uh, uh, down payment be neglected in, in our hearts and minds. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5. Here we read the same thing. Now, he who has, has wrought for us the self-same thing is God, who also has given unto us the earnest of his spirit. That's what we have, just a down payment. But I can tell you, it's a, it's mighty, it's a mighty important down payment. It's the most important down payment you'll ever uh, be involved in in your life. You know, sometimes you can make a down payment on something. We've all done that if we bought something on time. And then, lo and behold, uh, through circumstances, uh, one factor or another, uh, we, we had to leave town or some circumstance occurred. So uh, the, the, the time period went on. We, we, we couldn't go back and put any more money on it. And we couldn't claim it anymore. So we lost the down payment. I bought a meal ticket one time at a little uh, restaurant in Billings. And the fellow was a good little cook there. And uh, I'd go in there and I'd buy a meal ticket for 15, 20 bucks. You know, and he, every time I'd get a meal, he'd just punch the thing, keep track of it. And he had a little rack up there where he kept all these meal tickets. And, Lo and behold, I got drafted in the army. I had about half of that meal ticket that I hadn't eaten. So I kept that in my mind. And when I got out of the army two years later, I went back there 
And not only was there not a restaurant there, the guy was long gone to, to Alaska. I'd heard that he'd moved to Alaska, and there was, you know, it wasn't very much money, but it was just the idea of the thing. I'd lost that, all the rest of that money I'd put down on that meal ticket. I didn't get to collect it. Well, okay, let's not be negligent when it comes to the earnest that God has given us. Let's uh, utilize all of the uh, tools that God has given us so we can really take advantage of that and grow in grace and knowledge and be able to uh, attain, receive the full benefit that God has in mind by it. Second Timothy 1, verse number 7. Now, this is what we read about the Holy Spirit, and this is what, this is what we should be experiencing. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 7. In other words, here's, here's a manifestation, a manifestation of God's Holy Spirit. God has not given us the spirit of fear. So if, if, if people have trepidation and they're, they're worried and they're fearsome all the time and they don't have any confidence in anything, then, then something's lacking. What God has given us is a power, is, he's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, a disciplined mind. Now that doesn't mean that uh, we should be brazen and uh, and all of a sudden, sudden think that uh, we have all the confidence to accomplish everything in the world because the truth of the matter is the only confidence that really counts is the confidence that comes from God. We have our own self-confidence. What does that lead to? So as we read here then, it is a spirit of, it's a pure spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now I commented here on the importance of regular study and prayer. This is how we drink in of God's Holy Spirit, because if we receive the earnest of the Spirit and then we're not feeding upon the Spirit of Christ living in us on a daily basis, we're going to be very, very sorely lacking in being able to overcome. So as we read here in Philippians 1, verse number 19, I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You have to drink in of the, we have the earnest, that's there, but then we have to be drinking of this supply on a daily basis. And if your life's so busy that you do, you don't have time for prayer, you don't have any time for any study, well, you're just too busy. And uh, that, that busyness is going to be, will cost you dearly sooner or later. So that's why I want to emphasize the importance of always taking time for your prayer. Make that a priority. Make that a first thing in the day. And don't neglect it. If you have to go to, you know what the problem with most people is? The reason they can't get up in the morning is because they don't have the self-discipline to go to bed at night. You know, the, the key to a successful day is the previous evening. They stay up half the night watching their favorite TV show or something of that nature, and then they drag into bed some ungodly hour, and then it's time to get up, and the old alarm goes off, and what do they do? Roll over and ignore it. Then they have to rush to work, and they don't have time to pray. So let me tell you, you this, 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 what, you know, really the key to salvation, in a sense, is being self-disciplined enough to control your time and not neglect your the, the time you need to be spending with God. Galatians six, verse number eight. You see, be not deceived, as we read in verse seven. God is not mocked. We have all kinds of mockers in the world today that. Uh, Pay no attention to God, but, uh, oh, what a rude awakening they will have someday. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. 
destruction is the word. He's, in other words, he's, he will reap destruction. In other words, final destruction. But he that sought to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So that's what we need to be spending our time in, sowing the Spirit. And that means putting our spiritual priorities, putting the spiritual priorities first in our lives. Sure, it's necessary to have all of these physical things, of course. But if that's all we seek for and live for, you know, I cannot think of a single physical thing that I've ever wanted and really wanted badly that the urge and the desire and the love for it continued long, long, long a time after I got it. You get the thing and you have it, you lust after it, you get it and you have it, you have it for a while and then you've got used to it, then you begin to ignore it and then you usually put it up and maybe 10, 15 years later you think to yourself, why in the world was I so excited about that? Physical things don't satisfy. The spiritual things are the things that satisfy. Ephesians 5 verse number 9, here's one of the important things of the Spirit, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's what it produces. That's the fruit of it. In fact, the fruit of it is described right back here a little bit earlier in uh, Galatians, the sixth chapter, verse number 22. Here's what the Spirit should be producing. But the fruit of the Spirit is, here, here it is, love, joy, and peace, long-suffering, patience. I built a house down in Tennessee one time. And it, it, that was back in the days when the contractor told me, he said, you know, he said, when I got out of the Army back in 1945, he said, you could get all the workmen and the labor that you wanted. The men were in abundance, and they were hard workers, and he said, you could get anything you wanted that land, but you couldn't get any materials. Now, he said, you can get all the materials you want, but you can't find anybody that'll work. Yeah, well... We had a lot of problems in the building of that house. Uh, one of the subcontractors in the foundation made a terrible mistake. He left out a whole line of blocks, one whole level of blocks on one corner of the house, and, and the house was about eight inches lower on one end than it was the other. They had to go in there and shim it up and, and, and correct it, and it turned out all right in the end, but, uh, boy, it was a mess. And uh, he was, oh, this contractor was ready to pull his hair and uh, I just stood by him and, and, let, and let him solve all his problems. And finally, about the time the house was about completed, he saw me one day and he said, Mr. Clark, he said, I want to tell you. He said, you're the most patient man I've ever met in my life. He, does, he didn't know what I was going through. <laughs> you seen that movie, The Keen Mutiny? Here was old Captain what was his, Squeak, Squeak is what his name was. And he was sitting there and he'd get excited. He'd put those two lead marbles in his hand and he'd start shaking and rubbing them together. And he'd work himself into a frenzy as about the shape I was in by the time that house was done. Well, the Holy Spirit does give us long-suffering, as it says there, patience and gentleness and goodness. Being gentle with people. Now, how would you like to, you know, here's the thing we have to always ask ourselves. How would we like to be talked to under those circumstances? You find somebody and you just rip them apart. I can tell you it's going to come back on the sooner or later. Gentleness is the key of goodness and faith. Faith's a gift of God. And meekness and temperance. So those are all manifestations of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. And can we see those things? Are we making progress in those things? Are we growing in grace and in knowledge? Ephesians 5, 
in verse number 9, just as I read here, the fruit of the Spirit, and then this is a sort of a broad statement here, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So when we see very plainly uh, the, the, the works of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can see how very important it is. And uh, I might just close this by just mentioning one thing. How does God view people who have his Holy Spirit? As opposed to those who don't. Now we know the plan of salvation is going to take all those into consideration sooner or later. But for those of us who have been called to a knowledge of the truth, how does God view us now? Well, here's what it says in Romans 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You see, if we are really making an effort to live up to it, and we're doing our part, and we're in the process of overcoming, there's no condemnation. Now, that's the thing we have to realize about the Holy Spirit. That's the importance of it. These prophecies that were given in the Old Testament, even by Christ in the New, are being fulfilled today in his church.